0: This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.
1: morning New Zealand, welcome to another roundup of Never Rides the Boundaries, and I'm Neville Wallace, broadcast from Harrah, and coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, and Harrah Radio Masterton. For today, I have Grey District Mayor Tony Gibson, then Barbara Curriga joins us, Philip Duncan tells us more about the high UV levels. Finally, I have been reading quite a little bit about the history of Turutra Mokai, which I have recorded for inclusion here today. And first up, answering the hard questions about Three Waters is Tania Gibson. Well, three high-profile mayors have raised the issue of the Three Waters debate with solutions to be put to government as a possible alternative to the current proposal. With me is Grey District Mayor Tania Gibson to discuss the matter. Good morning, Tony Gibson. Mark, congratulate you on retaining the of the Grey District.
2: Thank you, Neville. Good morning.
1: Yeah, it's a cracker up here. I'm sorry that we can't export our sunshine down there, but good things come to those that wait.
2: <laughs> it does. We've had some good weather down
1: here lately. Now, the three fundamentals of the three waters are ownership, accountability and water quality, but, some councils are doing a damn good job. What about the ones that aren't?
2: Well, there are net... What- you know, we need to, um, we all agree that there is a need for change. So, you know, the consensus that the Auckland and Christchurch um, mayors put out yesterday, you know, we're certainly in support because with um, communities for local democracy, we have been working on those alternative models and, and we had been advocating to government, but it was just like they were paying lip service to it. So it's great to see that, um, you know, these two major cities come out now and, um, you know, be backing, you know, some of those proposals because we're certainly uh, more favourable
3: to regional models.
1: Yes, I see money is one of the uh, problems, but there was one that was a glaring example. They spent millions on uh, consultancy, yet the water was running down the drains in that particular city. How do you help an organisation like that?
2: Well, that's certainly, you know, they need to do some big work around that and, um, you know, that's where everyone does agree that there's need for change, but the Ministry of Health was not, um, you know, they weren't, looking after it as they should have been and, you know, they weren't um, you know, forcing these things when they should have been so, you know, that's where it's actually fallen down but, you know, many councils don't need that heavy-handed approach, you know, some do because they haven't done what they need, you know needed to do and, um, you know, certainly in the Grey District we have done what we needed to do, we still have some deferrals but we have addressed them in our long-term plans and we know exactly what they
1: are. Right, now, when it comes to that guidance, running water is the that's the uh, one that uh, everybody wants to get right. Uh, when it comes to the new scheme, who's going to help them?
2: Well, and that's what we do actually have our technical staff. Already in our councils, but the government have been taking them at a 30% more, um, pay rate. But, um, you know, we still actually are very lucky that our, um, water engineers are still here and, and they are very good. But, you know, looking at these regional water, um, organizations there they'll be, you know, there'll be more capital investment. There'll be more borrowing power and uh, we can get those services and those people in there that we need to actually make things better.
1: Yeah, cause I spoke to somebody that said that uh, this goes right back to the uh, Labour government in the uh, 80s under Longy when the uh, money to local councils was stopped. And I, I just don't know how you really got on from then.
2: Well, and that's it, you know, like we have seen a lot of things over time, you know, and, and like the NZTA model is one that we've sort of um, worked on with the three waters, but I mean, even our pensioner housing, what you've discussed, Ministry of Works, like, you know, the funding model for councils is effectively flawed, which has made people struggle and you've had to pick, you know, pick what you could do at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, in that local government um, review, we thought we might have heard more about that in there, but um, disappointingly not either.
1: Now, when it comes to accountability, I dare say, like the uh, Tarane- or South Taranaki District Council, they work in with Stratford as well as uh, New Plymouth. I understand with different projects, so that they don't have those huge costs. Is this a, another solution to the problem as well, Tanya? Yes, and like, you
2: know we certainly have um, had discussions with our neighbours in Westland about um, you know even our building. Um, and compliance services amalgamating how councils can um, bring their services together, and, and how we start looking at those future discussions. Which you know, and these regional water um, organisations would be more that where we can put those services, stop poaching each other's staff for a start. Yeah. have more borrowing power, and um, you know, streamline services and try and make savings in that respect.
1: Yeah. Now the other issue here is the co-governance one. Particularly one that's been prescribed by government. Now I've heard that many councils have great working relations with their local iwi and want to keep it that way. Is this a solution, Tania, to co-governance?
2: Well, yes, we certainly have a great um, relationship with our local Ewe, and we have been working on um, this Te Tai Poutini One District Plan, and that is, um, you know, a representative from each council and our local iwi, and um, you know that was the model I would see for governance um, going through for our regional model on the west coast, and I think you know that model would work wonderfully, and. They talk about Maori wards, but on the west coast we don't work like that. We prefer to have our local iwi sitting at the table rather than going through an election. Um, so you know that works very well for us here. We don't we only have one iwi, Ngati um, Waiwai, in the Grey District, and we have Macarthur down in Westland. So we have two local iwi throughout the whole west coast, and you know we work fabulously together.
1: Well, that's good to hear, Tania, because I was always on the impression that it was the other big one that was going to take over down there and you know who that is too well
2: that was certainly the discussions around entity d which um our iwi are certainly a part of but you know with all our relationships and working um with council we certainly have had you know great and and the iwi we're all aligned you know with our views of um, economic development and what we want for the west coast so you know it's a great working relationship
1: well i've run out of Questions i was going to put to you, Tania. Do you have anything that I've, we've missed out that you would like to add in?
2: Um, no, well, just really that we certainly support the Auckland and Christchurch Nears, and certainly we have Dan from Wymac and, you know, our Canterbury, um our communities for local democracy nears. We all got briefed yesterday before this went out and we're certainly all in support. So it will be great to see other councils stand up around the country and start joining us because the divisiveness um, that this has caused in local government and throughout the country, you know, we really need government to start listening to these alternatives because you know enough's enough we've um we've had enough so <laughs> it's, it's time to start listening
1: oh well thank you for your time today <laughs> tanya gibson and i hope all goes well with the three waters down there
0: <laughs> thank you
1: now here's barbara Currie explaining why fielding agriculture high school offers such great farming courses well, let's catch up with the busy Barbara Kurga, who's out and about very early this morning. Good b- morning, Barbara.
0: Yeah, good morning, Neville. Yep, I'm out and about. I uh, I have a little bit of voice this week, which I didn't have last week. It's coming back. It still doesn't sound perfect, but uh, it's much better than it was. Um I keep the people telling me my voice needs a holiday, so maybe Christmas is coming <laughs> sometime soon. Um, look, I've had uh, quite an eventful week, actually. It's been... Um, recess week from Parliament and um, I always make the most of these weeks when you're not going backwards and forwards to Wellington. There's two sort of complementary arms to the job that we do. And I started off the week in Palmerston North actually. Well I started in Fielding. I went to Fielding High School uh, and I always loved that school and I'll put in a plug for them because they're a school that uh, has sheep uh, they have bees Uh, They sell meat, uh, their own meat. They uh, are now into honey. And um, the other day they were showing me quite a range of honey products that they're up to. And I think uh, more schools should be into that stuff because, to be honest, uh, not a lot of kids, and probably rural kids understand more where their food comes from. But there's a lot of kids in this country that don't understand where their food comes from, and I just think it—you know—they've got over 600 students doing agriculture and horticulture classes at a certain level, and uh, just put in a plug for that, and wish more schools would do the same. You know, there are some good ones. I know Inglewood and my own electorate. Um, there's certain schools that do follow a bit of a pattern like that, but there's a lot that don't. So, um, wish them well. We, uh, the group of us, actually went then to. Um, Ag research in Palmerston North, and uh, they said, "What do you want? Uh, what do you want to know today?" And I said, "Well, probably the thing that we want is hope, because there's so much raining down on farmers at the moment. That um, you know, where are the possibilities? Where is the science? And of course, they started their science with sheep in terms of methane, uh, and now they have um, uh, bigger research equipment that enables them to do more." with cows, Um, so measuring the type of feeds that cows eat, uh, what effect it might have on their methane, uh, and they're also doing some quite good grass trials there. Um, But unfortunately, some of our regulatory systems at the moment don't uh, allow us to be able to um, test some of the stuff more broadly in New Zealand, so um, some of it's being tested in Australia and other countries. But there's quite a few possibilities. Uh, coming through, not just with cows, but with the feed. Um, And the thing is, there won't be a silver bullet to anything. It'll be a whole spray and a whole range of different things we do that that will make a difference. But there are a few things on the horizon. And I always live in hope, so I got some hope there. And then we went along to the uh, research centre with Fonterra. And, um, And that was fascinating as well, because, you know, we often talk about the price of our whole milk powder and our butter and our cheese. Um, there's some um, quite good science going on there about um, nutrition and lifestyle, um, and you know things that I think will come to the day one day across the world where you'll be able to f- buy a food that's specifically designed for you, and I'll be able to buy a specific food that's designed for me. Uh, because we're all biological creatures, but we're slightly different and we have different blood types. Uh, and there'll be certain things that, that, uh, that do um, suit certain people. So some world-leading stuff going on there, but We were all very impressed. We had a great day. Great. Um, and then in the middle of the week, I um, ended up going to the uh, Balance uh, Award winners in Turakina. And, uh, that's a place called, uh, well, actually, um, Sue's Redmain and Richard Redmain. Uh, and they started a process called Coastal Spring Lamb. And now they also have, uh, Coastal Lamb, which is other lamb that's reared at different times of the year. Um, just looking at how they've developed they're on quite, um, quite solid sand country. So looking at how they developed some of their uh, flat land on the sand country. The other thing that was quite impressive was how they incorporate plantings of pine trees into their farm business. And so they've got different parts of the farm with different soil types doing different things. And what was really cool about um, their operation with their trees was that uh, there are four um, four timber places in New Zealand that they actually supplied their trees uh, to. So their timber's getting utilized relatively locally or in a broad section of the, the Lower North Island and they're close enough to take it to market when they harvest it. Um, and just very impressed, you know, just just trying different things, um, but you know, they're actually having quite a success with their with their spring land. So so there's lots of people looking for uh, answers at the moment I'm currently uh, just sitting in the car on my way to Edgecombe and Wakatani and today I'm going to be looking at um, some biology that people are applying to farming there's a lot of talk at the moment about what goes on under the ground what's the biology that happens under the ground how do we retain water uh, what potential is there to grow carbon in our soils? Uh, there's quite a debate about that. Some people think it's a lot. Some people think it's not very much. Uh, and so it would be good to get some really good science on that. And um, and the other thing I'm looking at today is people who are uh, planting trees, not not in terms of uh, pine tree production, but in terms of planting uh, spaced-out trees across their um, areas of their farm, uh, around shade, shelter, moisture, um, and actually using it as a farm tool, uh, and I'm really quite fascinated to be looking at that just to see uh, what's going on there. So lots happening, Neville. There's one thing that you can always be sure about with agriculture and horticulture. Uh, it's a moving feast, uh, and the sooner we find some of these solutions, the better, because... Um, You know, the amount of red tape and tick boxes that are coming down at people at the moment is absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I think, you know, all focused on solutions at the moment to see how we can solve some of our challenges. So that's uh, that's what I've been up to, Neville, and uh, hopefully retain the voice for another week.
1: Oh, you've done jolly well, then. Thanks for that, Barbara. Your voice stood up to it, but don't work it too hard. (laughs) Catch up with Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz as Philip explains the high UV levels and why people who work outside should put on plenty of sunscreen and cover up from the burning sunlight. With out of control fires on one side of New Zealand, record rain on the other side, who better to tell us about our climatic conditions than Philip Duncan. Good morning Philip. Good morning Neville, how are you? I'm fine, but how's New Zealand's weather anyway Philip, as I said? Rain on one side of the South Island, and fires on the other. What the hell's going on?
3: yeah, we've certainly um, swung around in directions from um, where we've where we've been. you know we' had the wintry snaps now we're hearing you know people saying how hot it's been. we've seen um, weather stations getting up to thirty degrees just in the last uh, week, so we're really into that more summer side of spring now and it happens quite fast No, it happens most years too but it happens fast and so we're in that situation right now where um, we're feeling that that summer change arrive and really when you think about it summer's just around a, around the corner but at the same time in saying that while New Zealand was hitting 30 degrees it was snowing um, in Victoria and around um, Canberra so Australia's having a really rough spring they had a rough spring across Victoria um, Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales, that sort of southeastern corner in Tasmania but uh, further inland. They've been really walloped by one storm after the other but New Zealand has missed a lot of them and uh, and now we're on the warmer side of things while well, they've been on the colder side uh, that will probably even out a bit now as we get in through November but yeah it's been a very interesting past couple of weeks
1: Now yeah, when it comes to the record rainfall, I was talking to the mayor of uh, Grey the other day and she said, Oh, it's going to be an orange for here, but it's really exceeded that now, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, these big rain events, uh, you know, I understand why Met Service has the new colour coding system. In fact, I, I quite like it now. I didn't really understand it at first, but now, because no one really explained it, but, but now it makes uh, a lot of sense. But the weird thing about it is, I was interviewed uh, by Radio New Zealand last week, and they asked me about this heavy rain event for the West Coast with half a metre of rain coming. And they were like, you know, this is going to cause all sorts of problems. And I went, well, a couple of things. One, it's falling in a part of the country where very few people live. So mm-hmm. it's not like it's going to be flooding Westport or Greymouth. This is uh, Hokitika southward. So Hokitika would be the biggest town. And for the most part, they, they're they pretty flood-protected these days. The other part of it is that the second part of the equation is these rivers are built for deluges. And and while half a metre of rain is an exceptional amount no matter where it is in New Zealand, the one part of the country that can often deal with it without causing too many problems is the west coast from Hokitika southwards. So that rain event was, was a big one, but in saying that, we're still expecting this month to be drier than average on the west coast of New Zealand.
1: I didn't do my homework, Philip, but I think Bruce Bay is quite an uninhabited area, isn't it? Don't...
3: I don't know that area too well, which probably explains it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of these areas, and that's not to dismiss the people that live there and their livelihoods. But it's just when you, as a weather forecaster, we're always in that balancing act of is this a big event that everyone needs to be warned about, or is this um, a small? Big event, a local big event that we don't need to go so big about and those who live there locally will absolutely know what to do mm. because that's what happens in rural New Zealand. We know our risks mm. and when there's a, when there's a particular event happening in your area, most farmers, if they you know, when it's in the news, they know exactly what to do and doesn't need to have a big song and dance about it. It's, it's more when it hits the big cities, I think. That's where people are less prepared to have their houses go off or properties flood, whereas farmers, it's part of life. Farms flood all the time um, or have slips, and it's just a matter of how you deal with it and the warnings you get in advance so that you don't um, lose too much um, of your livelihood around it.
1: Now, yeah, just to finish off with Philip, Explain a little more about this high UV level that you highlighted in your YouTube on presentation last night or yesterday, Philip.
3: Yeah, well, um, it's another part. You know, once we go past the spring equinox, um, the UV rays really intensify. Now, it's worth pointing out that in New Zealand, even in the middle of winter, our UV rays are high enough to get skin damage and that can lead to melanoma, which, you know, we've got an exceptionally high rate of. Now, once you get past that spring equinox, which is back in September, so we're a long way out from that now, um, this is the time of the year that the sun's intensity really is noticeable. And so the extreme UV rays, which on our maps and our video were showing up as bright pink, sort of purplish colour, that now covers everywhere from the North Island northwards. So all the way from Wellington up to the equator. Uh, and, and you've got high levels as far south as Stewart Island. So we're now in that time of year that is basically like midsummer as far as sunburn is concerned. You might not have the heat every day uh, or the perfect weather conditions every day, but the UV rays are peak summer already. They don't get higher than what they're currently at in some parts of the North Island. So this means that, yes, yeah, slip, slop, slap, that all that stuff we grew up with and we've heard about for decades. That's what we've got to pay attention to now. And I just say to people, um, you know, try and just stay out of the direct sun as much as you can. I mean, it's it's healthy for us to be in the sun, it's healthy to get it, but farmers live in it, you know we lived, or not we, I, I, I'm not a farmer but farmers live outside yeah. Yeah. Be a great deal. so we, if you can avoid the sun, do it because you'll still get plenty of sun on you across the day but whenever you can put a hat on, whenever you can be in the tractor or indoors or in the shade, do it, it's going to be uh, something you are thankful for later on in life, that's well, for sure
1: it's Either slip, slap or colour up Philip so well done Philip, thank you for that update today and we'll catch up with you again next week and listeners, just remember, you can get a Bakshi weather forecast from YouTube. Philip puts one there every day. Thanks, Philip.
3: Thank you, Neville. Much appreciated.
1: Now, here's the first instalment from the book, A Centennial History of Hara and the Waimati Plains, which is all about the history of the Pa at Te Reremokai, Early Pa's and Fortifications – That Taranaki supported a very considerable native population in the days before the advent of the Pākehā as well, evidenced by the number of fortifications still to be seen throughout the province. Each of these old-time paths was constructed with infinite labour, some very long time ago, some more recently. Each of them was occupied for some period of time and each had a history of its own. Much of this history... And many a story surpassing interest has unfortunately been irretrievably lost. The history of the older people, the Tangata Fenua, the first power builders of Taranaki, was overlaid by that of the warriors who came from Hawaii in the year 1350. Centuries later, in their turn, the descendants of the warriors of the Heki were decimated by pestilence or were sent on that last journey along the path to the spirit world. By the raiders from the north. All were carried into a slavery worse than death to them. Again the elders of the local tribes have always been reluctant to divulge the information regarded as sacred or in respect of which old wounds have never ceased to smart even after the lapse of centuries. The older generation of Maori was passing while Pakiha faced the anxious toilsome days of early settlement and native wars, and so the deeds of yesterday, which might otherwise have been recorded, were lost forever. Some 400 years ago, the Nati Reiki people, who subsequently merged into the Nati Tapui, a hapu of the Nati Ruanui tribe of South Taranaki, decided to build a large pa on a site beside the Tawidi stream, about a mile and a half from the modern haura. The situation chosen was one which naturally lent itself to the old-time methods of fortification by foss and parapet and stockade. There was, cons- there was rising ground beside the stream, roughly level for a considerable area on the top, while the nature of the sloping ground at the sides was suitable for the construction of earthworks. On all sides of the path, several lines of these were constructed. The Tawati stream itself provides one, main, one of the main reasons for the establishment of the pa at this particular place. Apart from the stream providing a good water supply, it was known to be teeming with tuna, and that's eels. On the Tawati stream, the tribesmen constructed their eel wares, and many a good catch was prepared and dried over slow fires beside the stream on frameworks of green branches. The tribesmen had also the advantage of plentiful supply of birds which were cooked and preserved in their own fat. Nati Tupaya traded with the coastal people bartering their dried eels and preserved birds for fresh fish and other supplies. commonest form of pa, tuna or eel eelware was constructed in the form of one or more Vs according to the width of the stream. At the lower part of the V were guided fences which where the permanent main posts were frequently carved. Eel pots, hinaki, were set at the narrow outlet with the mouth of the eel pot facing upstream to catch the tuna travelling towards the sea in the autumn. Hinaki set to catch the eels passing upwards were set in the open river facing downstream. In such cases, bait was frequently used. These eel pots, were of tough material, neatly wrought on a wicker work principle. The funnel-shaped entrance to the eel pot was made small at the inner end and was equipped with a device to prevent the eels from escaping. The eels were sometimes netted, taken by hand, or speared. The eel spears were usually short with a number of sharp prongs of some hardwood set together like the tines of a fork. Dark moonless nights were considered the best time for eel spearing. The power of the Stone Age, constructed before the coming of the musket, was designed for use by a tribe using native weapons. Rakau Maori and resisting attacks by other tribes also used native weapons. When the musket came into use, the Maori had to adapt this fortification to the changed conditions. The modern nineteenth century gunfighters power is a very different type of fortification from the power of the Stone Age. The high massive ramparts and the deep trenches of pre European days were made to obstruct an enemy armed with native weapons, and the defenders actually fought standing on the wide top of the great ramparts. After the coming of the musket, the trench became much shallower and the defenders fought from behind a low rampart which afforded them protection from enemy bullets. Instead of fighting on top of the massive rampart, the defenders fought from behind a low one. The introduction of flanking angles and traverses and gun pits and Maori fortifications was subsequent to the introduction of the musket. Just as the old-time Maori was a model of neatness in his cultivations, so he was most particular about his powers. Mr. Percy Smith, writing of the Par near Te Ruki pa, three miles northeast of Hara, states that when he stayed there in 1858, a large number of people were living at the pa and they kept it beautifully clean and neat. It was surrounded by karaka drives and many of these trees grew in the par itself, furnishing a grateful shade. At the time, the PA was fortified with foss and rampart, and grotesquely carved heads grinned from the great posts of the stockade. During the Hau Hau Troubles of the 60s, the PA was burned by European troops. Throughout New Zealand, there is not surviving today the complete stockades of any pre European PA. Various attempts have been made to restore old time fortifications, but these have not been very successful. Well, that's all I have time for today, but I will continue this interesting story when I have time to put me, permit me to read more of this. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show, but I'll be back next week with more news from the region. Thanks to my producers, Evie and Anne. Ka and all. This show was made at Access
3: Radio Tadanaki and New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand on Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotadanaki.com.